See you guys. Thank you to the Chaos Theory crew for holding it down. Eric, what's up, man? Thanks for uh, – I texted you this morning. It was on short notice, but uh, I appreciate you taking some time to – it's only an hour, so you got it's the rest of the afternoon to do whatever. Jeff, as always, appreciate you, you know, giving me the uh, the old tap to the bullpen, right? You yeah. know, bringing me in. So not a problem. It's only an hour. Looking forward to jumping in a couple topics. So I'll, I want to kind of bounce around, uh, but I want to start with football. So I mentioned it. You can go to Horns 24-7 and check the uh, check out the article that Eric did last week. But it's probably the most in-depth piece anybody in the market's written on Kenny Baker. Uh, don't Kids, don't uh, let anybody tell you that covering, you know, a, a conference like Conference USA won't pay off at some point. Uh, Eric, you used your CUSA ties. You reached out to Tyson Helton, who was – Kenny Baker's boss for three years at Western Kentucky. One thing that was in that article that jumped out to me, as a matter of fact, I think it was the first the first quote you had from Tyson Helton. I, I'll be honest, I didn't know much about Kenny Baker, uh, but once I saw the name Pete Jenkins, I was like, okay, now I'm starting to feel better about this thing. Did you and Coach Helton get into kind of this – for lack of a better term, man, it sounds like a boot camp. Pete Jenkins was running for about 10 years, just training guys how to become defensive line coaches, aspiring D-line coaches, just kind of passing down the knowledge through this. I, I, like I said, I guess for lack of a better term, it's kind of a boot camp that Kenny Baker went through. And, and Pete Jenkins apparently told Tyson Helton, like, yeah, this is Kenny Baker's the next guy. Yeah, listen, first off, Jeff, you know, last time I was on, I know we probably spent a little too much time talking about Conference USA and FIU. Who knew next time I'd be on, it would pay off, right? Yeah. The Longhorns' next defensive line coach would be coming via the Miami Dolphins, but before then, Conference USA, Western Kentucky. Yeah, as you, you mentioned there, and I appreciate the kind words in terms of the piece. I'm probably, you know, I'd be willing to venture. I'm one of the few people, if maybe not the only one, who has a direct line to Tyson Helton here in Austin. But appreciate my guy, uh, Coach Helton, you know, just give him a, yeah. a text on short notice. He was more than happy to talk about Kenny Baker and just diving right into what you said about Pete Jenkins. Yeah, you know, um, Jeff, it's actually interesting because Tyson told me that it was uh, Jimmy Lindsay who was the defensive line coach at Western Kentucky, left to take a job at Illinois, now has been at mm-hmm. LSU and a couple other places. I think he just left LSU this past year for some health reasons. But it, it was his recommendation of saying, hey, you know, um, this is the next guy. And then through that understanding that Kenny Baker had the blessing, the cosign of the, you know, known as the godfather of defensive line coaches mm-hmm. in Pete Jenkins. So, you know, and here's the thing in my mind that, that really jumps out to me, you know, Jeff is doing this for a while. You'll hear plenty of guys you get the standard line, right, about they're an up-and-comer, they're a riser, they come, you know, well-regarded, so on and so forth. But just try this on for size if you're a Longhorn fan. You know, for those who may not be familiar with Tyson Helton, of course, he's the the son of Kim Helton, longtime college coach and brother of Clay Helton, right? So it's a coaching mm-hmm. family. So you're not just getting someone, and that's what kind of stuck out to me, Jeff, is it's not just a, hey, you know, this is someone who, you know, my coaching buddy who I was down the line with a couple of years back said, hey, this is a guy to look out for. This is someone who comes from a coaching family, has been around coaching his entire life. So for him to give that stamp of approval, in addition to the Pete Jenkins coaching tree, to me, that did really jump out to me. And, and you know, I'm sure we'll dive into it a little bit here, but Jeff, you know, I'll let you leave. But there's a lot to like in my mind with this hire. Again, it's no secret that, you know, wasn't the first choice. But when you really get into the nuts and bolts, and if you haven't checked out the piece, you know, go and check out on horns247.com. 
in my mind, there's a lot to like about Kenny Baker in terms of not only just the immediate future for Texas football, but, you know, long-term future as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, his ties, obviously he's from, you know, Metro Atlanta. So a guy that understands how to recruit Metro Atlanta, I, I think moving to the SEC, you've got two guys and look, you can, you can speak to this, Eric. I, you know it from covering that conference. I know it from just covering recruiting in general. I mean, when you're the defensive line coach at Western Kentucky, you got to go to some outposts <laughs> that aren't exactly like prep football factories to try to find guys. So Kenny Baker's well-traveled over the Southeast and, you know, you've got between he and Tashard Choice, you got two guys that know that region pretty well. So if you think about it, you know, you've got obviously Sark knows that region pretty well from his time at Alabama. So does AJ Milwee. You know, you got Terry Joseph in Greater New Orleans, who I like having a guy in New Orleans because he can tell you, hey, you we can recruit this kid or this school. Don't waste your time even going over here because, you know, the if it's a private school, like the, the, the dean of students is an LSU grad, the AD is an LSU grad, they got a kid worth going to LSU, they're going to LSU, so don't waste your time. You need somebody like that in New Orleans. Uh, and just the ties of the Southeast that this staff has, you're going to need those. Because now, you know, going into the state of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, uh, kind of that upper part of Florida, kind of Gainesville to really if you just follow that kind of I-10 corridor going from like Gainesville, Pensacola, all the way to, to Jacksonville, that's all SEC. That's all conference territory now. You're recruiting against your conference rivals, so you need to bulk. You need to beef up there. Uh, but the fact, you know, what he did with in terms of player development, and we talked about this on the Longhorn Blitz podcast, which is out by the way now, kids, on that Horns twenty four seven podcast app. You get Eric and Chip on the uh, on the flagship tomorrow morning. Uh, you get the Blitz today. And by the way, the uh, the YouTube edition, the video edition of the flagship is already out. If you go to the Horns twenty four seven YouTube channel, you can find that. But we we're talking about it on. Uh, Longhorn Blitz yesterday, and the staff makeup that Sark has on that side of the ball, it, it's really interesting because you've got a, di- a, a, a dynamic there uh, between, you know, you've got Blake Gideon and Kenny Baker, two young guys who help you in different ways in terms of both player development, recruiting, the whole deal. Terry Joseph's been at this for, what, probably 20 years now? I think, you know, he him – PK and Johnny Nansen, now they're kind of the old heads. So you kind of got this mix of youth and experience that I just think meshes really well. You can't have you can't have too many of either, right? You can't just have a staff of just grizzled veterans because then how do you relate to players in 2024? But you can't have a staff of young guys because you and I both, Eric, we've heard of too many shenanigans, right, when guys just hire – if it's a young head coach – hiring guys the same age, very rarely does that stuff work out for a number of reasons. So I just, the more than anything, you've got the Pete Jenkins stuff and, you know, Kenny Baker's ties to guys like Jimmy Lindsay. I dig that stuff. He's got a track record of developing players at Western Kentucky, which isn't exactly an NFL factory for defensive linemen. But then that staff makeup, man, I, I like the, and I like the fact that Johnny Nansen has been a defensive line coach. So, you know, Kenny Baker's got two guys he can lean on. He can lean on PK, which PK works with the edge guys. He can lean on Johnny Nansen. The staff makeup on defense, more than anything, more than just the Kenny Baker hire itself. I I can't say it's yes, it's going to be a smashing success, but I see I see Sark's vision. I see what he's trying to do with it, and I dig it. Yeah, Jeff, I want to touch on a couple of points that you made. I'm going to start 
we keep talking about the fact that it's SEC country. That's something that, you know, I haven't necessarily, you know, kind of speculated on too much, even amongst us as a staff. It's just kind of been in my own mind as a as a Floridian and someone who's, you know, covered Conference USA and the Sun Belt going in there, you know, dead smack in the South. But it is a recruiting territory that Texas will have to expand to. And Jeff, you know this being a long time, you know, Horns fan and, and someone's covered this team for a long time. I, I, I am curious to see how it plays because it's one thing to be able to go into your, you know, your Carolinas and your Georgias and things of that nature. But, you know, when you got to get into Florida, you got to get into some of those, the, the, the Alabamas of the world, right? Yeah. Definitely curious to see how that's going to play out. So in my mind, having a guy like Kenny Baker and especially at Western Kentucky, which they recruit Florida a lot. Um, right. and, and listen, which school in the nation, what program in the nation doesn't recruit Florida a lot, heavily nowadays, but especially in that area, you know, because the really the the kind of the G5 philosophy has been, hey, you know, we'll pick off a couple of those, you know, two star, three star guys who don't end up going P5 or for whatever reason, especially now mm-hmm. in the portal era, you know, their offer falls through and we'll get them. So to have someone with those ties is huge. The staff makeup, again, very much agree with that point. You got to have kind of a blend of, of youth and age and especially in today's college football. Again, you know, some of your players and Coach Helton actually mentioned this on the call. He said that, you know, in terms of Kenny Baker, he's a guy I can relate to a 16, 17-year-old kid in recruiting and an 18-year-old, but also, you know, he's not too far removed from being some of these older guys who are 23, 24, 25, Mm -hmm. plays well with them as well. So I think that's a big thing. And even, you know, Jeff, uh, I'll kind of segue into my last point, but just in terms of relating to players, Tyson Helton was really adamant. He was like, listen, if there's one thing I don't have any doubts about Kenny Baker is that he, these guys are going to gravitate towards him. You know, he, he felt that instantly when he walked into the room, mm-hmm. he felt the fact that this was a guy who can relate to players, his, his position rooms. Even when I spoke with D'Angelo Malone, appreciate D'Angelo for hopping on the phone really quick, you know, quick minute and just talking about how he helped his game. But D'Angelo yeah. said yeah, that he just instantly related to him. And you're talking about a guy who, you know, just it's, it's funny, Jeff, that I can remember these numbers off the top of my head, but 2019, he has a 99 tackle, 22 tackle for loss, 11 sack season. Kenny Baker gets there in 2020, and D'Angelo said, there were things in my game that I did not have that I would not have been ready for in the NFL had I not been coached by Kenny Baker. But really, yeah. the, the third thing that I want to touch on really quick, Jeff, and I really would love to get your thoughts on this that Coach Helton was adamant about, because I think this plays well, especially with this year's group of Longhorns. He said that one of the things that really stood out to him about Kenny was, he can pick apart a guy and really assess him based on what level of, you know, experience and where their game is. Right. Because especially at that G5 level, you may get a high school guy, you may get a a kid who's on his third or fourth school, right. And drops down to the G5 level, or you'll get a Juco guy. Right. And he said that one of the things about about Kenny Baker is that he can assess, okay, this is where this player is in their development. Here Mm. are the tools I need to give them. And it's not a matter of just blanketly coaching everyone the same, right. You got to be able to assess, where that guy is. And I think especially with this year's Longhorn team, that's a huge factor. Yeah. We've heard Sark talk. And I, I think that I, I don't, and again, I don't know what was said between Sark and Kenny Baker in the interview, but we've heard Sark talk about that with quarterbacks as much as he works with quarterbacks. Like AJ Milwee's the quarterbacks coach, but Sark obviously spends a lot of time with those guys. And I think you'll hear him say the same thing this spring that he said last spring and the spring before that. Quinn Ewers, being in his third full year, going into his third full year in the offense, is at a very different place than Arch Manning, who's going into his second full year in the offense, who's in a very different place than Trey Owens, who's going to be seeing it for the first time. 
So, and you have to be mindful of as you you want to develop guys to help them reach their ceiling, but you've got to be mindful of everybody's on a different track. Everybody's at different stages and being able to analyze and really dig into and identify what stage is this guy at? What is the next step for him to take? Like I, I did a, uh, a Q&A for the national site this week with my guy, Kevin Flaherty. And one of the questions was, you know, what is the next step for Quinn Ewers? To me, the next step for Quinn Ewers is that thing that takes quarterbacks from being good to being great. Can you elevate the play of everybody around you? You know, I think we saw Quinn do that at times last year. There were times where I, I don't, I, it was kind of hit and miss. But when you think about the guys at Texas that have done it at a high level, that's what Vince Young did. Colt McCoy did that. Sam Ellinger did that. Can you be the guy that if you've got the ball with two minutes left and you've got to drive the offense 80 yards with no timeouts and you're in the sideline huddle before you get on the field, are there 10 guys looking at you with the belief like, yeah, we got enough time. He can get it done. Like, can you elevate everybody? Can you give everybody around you confidence? That to me is the next step for Quinn. The next step for Arts would be if we put you in a game, can you handle the entire offense? Can we can we run our full game plan that we would have had with Quinn? Can how much of that can we do with you? And that's all about arts processing and learning and understanding. And I think for Trey Owens, then the the first step is can you keep your head above water? Because there's going to be a point. We saw Quinn go through it two years ago. We saw Arch go through it last year. There's going to be a point in spring ball where Trey Owens just feels probably feels like he's drowning and like man, I don't I don't know about this. Everything's moving fast, but can you get through that point? And now, bringing it back to Kenny Baker's group, Alfred Collins is in a very different place than Sadir Mitchell, who is in a very different place than Vernon Broughton, who's going to be in a very different place than Alex January coming in as a true freshman. So it's being mindful of the guys, where they're at, where they want to go, what track they're on. And it, it's a tough thing to do, Eric, because you're trying to juggle. You want your group to evolve. You want your group to develop. You want your group to get better. But at the same time, I've got to have, if I'm Kenny Baker, I've got to have higher expectations for Alfred Collins and Vernon Broaden than I do for Alex January and Sadir Mitchell just because the experience factor. And the next step for Broaden and Collins is you guys are getting ready for the NFL. The next step for Mitchell in January is we need to count on you guys for – Throw out your arbitrary number of snaps, right? 8, 12, 15, whatever it is. So just you have to coach guys the way you want to coach them, the way you want them to play. But that to me is what it goes back to. I think that kind of to me that I, I guess that kind of answers the question. You just got to be mindful that everybody's on a different track. And it's not a coaching is not a it's not a one size fits all type deal. It's not a it's not a blanket type thing. And Jeff, really quick, has kind of put a cap on it. You know, I, I think a big thing, and, and again, when talking to Coach Helton, he didn't feel that Kenny Baker would have an issue with this, is how quickly can he command the respect of that room? It's not going to happen overnight, right? We yeah. know what Bo Davis meant to that room and, and, and really Texas football as a whole, right? But where I think it gets interesting is, and we can, you know, kind of speculate about this as, as the offseason continues, should Texas add another veteran guy, especially in the middle, you know, defensive tackle, yeah. Understanding where everyone is. So let's look at AC and Broughton. Those guys mentally, whether or not they're going to, you know, get the same respect as they had for Bo Davis, 
you know, that, that's subjective, right? But right. you know where they're looking to go. They're looking to get to the league, plain and simple. So th th you're going to get, ideally, you're going to get the best of them. There is no more, I got an, another year or so on and so forth, yeah. right? You can put then, you can put Tio Savea in that same group too. Yeah. Exactly. And and Tio Savea, and then, like I said, if you get another veteran, you have guys who, hey, we're bought in enough to, we see the goal, we see the end game, we see the mission. That's where we're trying to go, right? Yeah. Then you have that next group of guys, and that's where, again, in terms of kind of commanding the respect of that room, we'll see what that happens. But at least I think that's going to be, you know, crucial, and it should work itself out just based on kind of the the, the makeup and dynamics of, of that, that D-line room. Yeah. Uh, the big thing, the big thing for what that is, and when you, you know, it's funny, man, Texas hasn't been in this position where you've got a really good initial staff and – you're losing really good coaches, and the challenge now is to replace them with really good coaches. Uh, we saw Mac Brown do that. The best example I can give is, you know, Mac loses Everett Withers as a secondary coach. Well, I would have been after year three. It's like, oh man, Everett Withers has recruited his position well. He's developed some guys. You know, Quentin Jermon was an All American. What what are you gonna do? Who are you gonna hire to replace him? Well, you went and hired Dwayne Aquino, who's probably, definitely in my lifetime, the best defensive backs coach this place has ever had. And Dwayne Aquino and Everett Withers, from a personality standpoint, both really good defensive backs coaches, but both get, get the job done very, very, in a very, very different way. Both have, both have their ways of reaching players. Uh, not every coach is the same. So what I would tell Kenny Baker is he's just got to be himself. You know, I think there's a lot of buzzwords. Eric, you can throw around Texas football right now. Uh, authenticity, I think, is one that probably might mean more than anything because I think that's one reason why Sark has been able to reach the players is because how really is. I mean, we heard Jalen Ford talk about it at the Sugar Bowl, you know, when he's having his, what does he call Wednesdays? The Tell the Cult, Truth Cult, Wednesday? Culture Wednesdays, Culture Wednesdays. Yeah, Culture Wednesdays. It's, you know, Jalen said it at the Sugar Bowl. It might have been at the Sugar Bowl. It might have been before that. But he's like, look, when Sark is telling us about everything he went through at Washington and in SC, kind of when he was at his low point, and he's saying it not just with all us in the room, but with his son sitting dead center in front of him, that's pretty powerful stuff. And it it lets it allows guys to open up. I know that's a, a piece of it, but I just think I think if Kenny Baker's just himself, you know, you coaches tell players all the time, what was that cliche trust your training? Kenny Baker just trusts his training. I think he's going to be fine. He should be fine. Uh, he he just he can't he can't come in and try to be Bo Davis because Bo has his ways of reaching players, and not every coach can do it that way. But again, Kenny Baker might have a way that's not fit for everybody else. So I would just say if you're on the fence or you're uncertain, just give it a chance. And I, I'll say this, Eric, and, and we can we can move on to something else. Sure. The the stuff about, oh, man, is he a great recruiter? Uh, he, he, you know, can he recruit? Dude, a lot of that stuff's overrated because when you go to Tech, when you're in a place like Texas, you're if you're a coach at Texas or Oklahoma, Texas A&M, LSU, you know those power programs that it opens doors to a caliber of recruit that at Western Kentucky would have been locked and you wouldn't have been able to go through. So you're going to have access to players to a wider talent pool of guys just because of the logo on your shirt. And if you can just, the, the Tyson Helton piece that you mentioned that's key, 
his ability to relate to players. That's what recruiting is all about. It's about relationships. I've seen a lot of guys that came to Texas, man, that didn't have, uh, you know, reputations as, as rainmaker recruiters. Like Craig Niver wasn't considered a rainmaker recruiter. Recruited a lot of damn talent to Texas. Uh, Jason Washington did the same. And a lot of guys on that Tom Herman staff didn't have power five experience, but they ended up recruiting their positions uh, and just recruiting their areas really, really well. And the same thing with the, with the Charlie Strong staff. You know, Brian Jean-Marie, uh, you know, was with Charlie at, at Louisville, and I think that was the only kind of, would you consider the old Big East, Eric, a major conference? Like, <laughs> it was the only major conference experience he had. But, dude, dude comes in and and ends up getting, you know, Malik Jefferson and Anthony Wheeler, and, and he, he loads that team with talent. And a lot of those guys came to Texas to play defense for Brian Jean-Marie. So I, I, I say all that just to say, don't pay attention to a guy's background in recruiting. Like, oh, Kenny Baker hadn't recruited, you know, any four-star guys. Well, name me the last time Western Kentucky got a got a guy in the top 247 or got a top 100 guy. Maybe it's happened once or twice, but I, I can't tell you off the top of my head. Just, just as long as he's a relationship guy and that part is real, that part comes true, I think he'll be fine. The, the recruiting stuff is, I think it's overrated. Jeff, I'll just mention one quick funny story. We can transition. I'm gonna. Is it an Everett Withers story? Because I thought <laughs> we, you, you and I know, we know the deal. Yeah, it, it is. You know what? I'll save that one for off air. Okay. Um, but this one, I, I'm I'm gonna leave some names out. But just talking about someone, you know, told me a story. Um, Coach Helton recommended that I talk to somebody uh, about you know his Kenny Baker's ability to relate and people. Listen, God bless Bowling Green, Kentucky, and, you know, Hodgson Smith Stadium that looks every bit of 60 years old where there's not an elevator to the press box. You, you take an elevator to, to the – you take an elevator, <laughs> Jeff, to um, the, the first uh, kind of set of, of, of stairs, and then you walk through the crowd as, as you get up to the, uh, get, get up to the, the press box. But the Ooh. story I'm going to tell you is this. So there's a kid who ended up – was from South Florida, um, from uh, Miami Gardens, and, and um, you know, ended up in Western Kentucky. And, and he said to me that, listen, you know, he related really well to Coach Baker and, and you know, went on his recruiting visit. And he said, uh, the first thing is, you know, you fly to Nashville and then you, you drive over to Bowling Green, Kentucky. And the first <laughs> sign he saw, and I've seen the sign. That's why it's so funny. Yeah. There, there's a billboard that said rehab is okay. It's about a mile from campus. And he looked up, he's like, where the hell am I? And listen, God bless Bowling Green. Great folks. Enjoyed all my time there. But listen, you can get someone from Miami Gardens to Bowling Green, Kentucky, as you mentioned. You walk in with that Texas logo on, on your shirt, and you, you'll be all right. Man, the, the stories you hear from G5 coaches, FCS coaches, especially like the, the JUCO guys about just places they got to go and stuff they got to see, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a different world, man. The other thing I want to ask you about, too, because yeah. as you said, you're, you're, you're a Floridian. You've got experience in all parts of that state. And Texas actually under Sark has done a good job. I mean, each of the last two cycles, they went into kind of that north part of Florida, getting C.J. Baxter and then getting Jarrett Gibson. But I think you'll agree with me on this. And you, granted, your experience in – it's kind of like, you know, me asking you about Texas. Your experience in Texas is my experience in the state of Florida. And you have more of that than I do experience in Florida. Sure. But, like, like I mentioned, that I-10 corridor pretty much like from Pensacola to Jacksonville – it is is different. It's a different part of the state yeah. than like yes. the I four corridor, like Tampa, Orlando, 
which is a very different part of the state than Miami, Fort Lauderdale. Like it's not Florida. I'll use the term again. Florida is not a one size fits all state. Those, the, the demographics are very, the demographic, socioeconomic backgrounds, political affiliations. It, it's, it's very different swaths of people, Eric, very different groups of people as you move about that state. And, and you got to be able, you got to be similar to like Louisiana. You got to be able to know based on what part of the states you're going into, you got to be able to know as a recruiter kind of what you're walking into because you might not be able to recruit a kid from Gainesville the same way you'd be able to recruit a kid from Fort Lauderdale. It's just two totally different experiences in terms of where they grow up. Jeff, you know, you told me this story. I can't remember if it was on the way to a fall practice or we were on the way to Baylor, but the best way I can sum it up, maybe it'll, you know, kind of emphasize it, drive it home for our listeners is you told me a story about trying to get in contact with the right assistant coach down in <laughs> South Florida. And listen, I, I, I don't know how it is here in Texas, but if you're in South Florida and specifically Dade County and you're at a Miami Northwestern or a Miami Central schools and producer Antonio Browns and your Dalvin Cooks and, you know, countless Dade County guys, mm-hmm. there are no less than 36 assistant coaches mm-hmm. and recruited and, and nine recruiting coordinators. And then, and then an additional six guys on, on the sideline who just have the polo. Yeah. It's uh, you know, you end up talking to one assistant and then you're like, yeah, well I talked to the recruiting coordinator and they're like, who? I'm like, oh, okay. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different. Like Louisiana, Louisiana was the one where I first experienced it. It wasn't as wheels off as Florida, but it's like the, you know, one high school was one high school. I was talking to a coach and I was going to practice and he's like, yeah, I was like, well, I'm finishing up my shift uh, with UPS right now. I'm like, got a day job. Like, man, I'm, I look, I'm coming from Texas where like it's bigger schools, like coordinators don't even teach. They're in the field house all day, you know? So uh, yeah, it was weird, but man, Florida just, you know, and then guys, guys change schools. Like, it seems like every week and, you know, oh, I'm at Homestead this week. And then the next week, dudes at Miami Central, like, what the hell happened? Like, we're, I, yeah, it's, it's a different, it's a different world in the state of Florida, man. It is, there's a lot that's wheels off about your home state, Eric, but the structure of high school football coaching staffs is one that you have to, you have to have an experience dealing with it to really understand like what, what it's all about. And, and, and Jeff, all jokes aside, you know, to kind of drive it home and make it pertinent for, again, you know, Texas fans, you're telling the truth when you say, hey, you'll go to certain schools in South Florida and they'll give you the whole runaround about, all right, you, you know, here's this guy and legit four star, but they've got relationships with, yeah. I, I almost mentioned a couple of names I probably should as far as coaches, but they've got relationships with insert coach or insert school that it's like, all right, yeah, you, you're just, it's really lip service, you know, yeah. you're kind of wasting your time here. So yeah, it would be interesting to see how kind of Sark plays that. And to your point, yes, you know, there's a big difference between recruiting a, a Derrick Henry from Yulee up there, you know, where everyone in the town, all, all of, you know, 6,000 people in Yulee are like, oh yeah, you know, Derek goes to church here. We can find him. We can for you to talk <laughs> or, or, you know, he's at grandma's house as opposed to, you know, getting the kid from South Florida, even Tampa. Right. You know, and, and that's where I think it's been interesting. Even a kid like DeAndre Robinson, of course, didn't end up making it to, to mm-hmm. Texas, but he's someone who, you know, started out at Edgewater with CJ Baxter, finished his career at Jones, bounced around a bit. But even that area, Orlando, Tampa is probably the most stable of, of, the, yeah. of the state yeah. compared to, you know, going south or even, you know, some, some areas in, up north. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, 
there's the the traditional power programs in uh, in Tampa and Orlando kind of stay the same where there seems like there's some stability there whereas like in South Florida it it changes seems like it changes conflict St. Thomas Aquinas has had things on lockdown for a while now but I mean like where is Miami Northwestern now you know there was a time where they were churning out you know eight nine division one kids a year and I Miami Northwestern hadn't been on my radar for a minute um yeah, it's it's just it's a different deal. It's kind of like you know the state of Texas is a little bit like that. Like you can't, you know, you a kid from South Dallas has very different life experiences than say a kid like Ty Anthony Smith from Jasper or um, like a Roshan Johnson from PNG. Uh, it's, just, it's just totally different life experiences, and you got to be able to relate and adapt. So, bottom line is, Eric, because of your article. Uh, you vouching for Tyson Helton and telling me about that conversation. I feel better about the Kenny Baker hire. Everybody else should feel better about the Kenny Baker hire. No doubt about it. I'm not saying I'm not saying he's gonna be, you know, uh, a P5 head coach. Sure. By the way, we got to come up with a different term because it's not the Power Five I anymore. Mean. Just power a power conference head coach in five years. I'm not saying that's gonna be Kenny Baker, but I, I do feel like sorry. And, and man, look. The other thing I wanted to get with you on, and we yeah. talked about staff makeup a little bit, dude. Other than retaining Andre Coleman, which was a mistake he rectified as soon as he had a chance to. By the way, Andre Coleman wasn't Sark's first choice as wide receivers coach. Anyway, he wanted Dennis Simmons, who he played with at BYU, but Dennis Simmons and Lincoln Riley are pretty much tied at the hip at this point in their careers. So that that wouldn't happen. And at least Sark got Dennis Simmons a big fat raise from Oklahoma. So making Joe C write those checks. So at least Sark did that. But I digress. Other than the Andre Coleman thing, Eric, his initial staff was off the charts good. And you look at the 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 job he's done, like Stan Drayton goes and takes a head coaching job. He brings it to Shard Choice, who rewind the clock back two years. Other than the fact that I knew him from I knew he played at Oklahoma. I remember him at Georgia Tech and with the Cowboys. Other than that, I don't know anything about Tashar Choice as a coach. I knew nothing about Tashar Choice as a coach. I think we all say Tashar Choice has worked out. It's it's been a good hire. Going from Andre Coleman to Brennan Marion to Chris Jackson, I don't you could debate whether Chris Jackson's an upgrade from Brennan Marion, but it definitely recruiting and player development definitely hadn't slipped. As a matter of fact, player development might be more on track now under Chris Jackson, especially going into year two. So Sark has been able to be, he hired really good coaches. He's been able to replace them with really good coaches. Sark is at a place going into year four where Charlie Strong didn't get a year four and going into Tom Herman's year four was kind of like, all right, everybody knows the deal. If he doesn't win 10 games, it's we're going to be doing the coaching search bit in December. And obviously that was before COVID threw a, a monkey wrench and everything, but Going into year four, I can say without a doubt, Sark has earned the benefit of the doubt, at least for me. I'll give Sark the benefit of the doubt on his on his hiring practices. No, no doubt about it. I mean, you can take a look at the track record. I think he did a great job of laying it out there. That in and of itself should give Texas fans reason to believe, hey, you know, this is going to work out just fine. Also, the, the point that you touched on a little bit, having a Johnny Nansen, you know, who has coached D-line before, he's going to have guys he can lean on, PK. Yeah. This is, there's no reason to believe in my mind that, again, like you said, it, will he become the next, you know, insert head coach? Maybe, maybe not, right? But for all intents and purposes, for the purposes of this hire, I, I think you got to feel optimistic. Even though you may not have known the name, yeah. even everything you know, you got to feel optimistic about it. Can I, uh, 
You grew up, you were a Florida State fan growing up, right? Correct. Okay. So you you have a knowledge base of the Florida State Miami rivalry that not a lot of us, not not none of us in Texas really have. We watched it from afar, but you were you were there in it. Uh I know, and I don't want to put all your business out there, Eric, but I do know you you got uh from your time covered FIU when you're one of like two guys that cover that beat. I know you got a relationship with, with Butch Davis. Sure. Um I've always wondered this about Miami because I've always felt like if, if if University of Houston ever got the right guy, and Tom Herman might have been the right guy for Houston if he stayed there. That that could be Tom Herman's big kind of what if. What if he would have just stayed at Houston and been able to recruit the caliber of guys that he recruited, and eventually Houston would have been a, been a, in a power conference? Like, what could Tom Herman have built at Houston? And I think about that in relation to Miami. You think about not just what Howard Schnellenberger did, but what Jimmy Johnson built on, and then what Butch did, kind of in the the U version 2.0, building that team that a 2001 Miami team again, probably the most insanely talented college football team of my lifetime. That can't happen again at Miami, right? Like the state of Florida is too much of a South Florida, it's that that kind of state of Miami that Howard Schnellenberger initially drew up back in the late '70s, early '80s. It, it's too it, is it too much of a battleground you think for Miami to ever get back to what it was from that standpoint it's tough right and I sigh because you always Jeff it's never necessarily a shortage of talent right 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 they they get players there but I'm gonna give you and again I don't know if I've mentioned this before I'm gonna give you my theory on why I believe Miami struggles more than anyone else. Florida State even struggled. I mean, remember, Florida State struggled for a long time at the, the end of the Bobby Bowden era and, and going through, you know, obviously Jimbo, you know, won a, a national champion, but that's that's a product of Jameis Winston. I mean, let's not get that confused at all, right? And I once heard, I once heard Feinbaum say, and it's, it's hard to disagree, he said, what's the difference between Jimbo Fisher and Gus Malzahn? Jameis Winston? <laughs> simple, as, simple as that, right? But... You know, it, it, you're, the days of my formative years to football, late 90s, early 2000s, Florida State, Florida, Miami, all being good. Hell those yeah. days are gone. Here's the reason why, and I'll relate it to, to Miami. So, yes, you talk about the state of Miami, and that was what Howard Stellenberger recruited and go all the way through it even to the Butch Davis years. Mm -hmm. Jeff, remember, there wasn't a USF. Right. UCF was a F FCS, then one double A school until 1999. Um, there wasn't a Florida Atlantic, an FIU that didn't exist. Those two schools didn't exist until, you know, the, the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And then you take a look at all of these group of five schools who now recruit into Florida, right? It, yeah. it can go through Conference USA. Every Conference USA school or every somebody, they have a Florida guy, right? Who yeah. their, their sole purpose is, yeah, all right, you coach them up enough, just get us into Florida, right? Mm -hmm. Where I'm going with that is, and this is my firm belief, Miami can still get the five-star guys. They can still get the four-star guys. Um, and I've had a couple of former Miami guys tell me this because during my time covering FIU, Ken Dorsey worked on staff yeah. right before he went to Buffalo. Kennard uh, Lang worked on staff. Damian Lewis worked on staff. Joel Rodriguez, a former lineman there, um, you know, now is that a... Damian Lewis is a Texas guy, by the way. Sulphur Springs. Shout there, out to you, Texas. There you go. You know, those guys worked on staff. Um, they said the biggest difference is the deaf. And the reason the deaf isn't there is because those, what we'll call three-star guys now, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe two-star guys who would have been, you know, 
a freshman, sophomore guy who kind of just slowly buys his time. And by the time they're a junior or a senior, maybe they're not Andre Johnson, Santana Moss, but they're Kenny King or they're, you know, Andre King or they're Roscoe Parrish, Roscoe Parrish or, you know, insert guy, right? You know, yeah. um, uh, James Lewis, you know, guys like those. They're those guys who end up being dependable starters for you. Mm-hmm. That's gone because those guys are going to USF, UCF, a Florida Atlantic, or or out of state, right? Yeah. And now, and now, Jeff, even more so because you take a look at the at the at the portal, and a lot of guys, you know, those G five guys who might have stayed four years and became you know, an Antonio Brown, of course, his situation a little bit different. Yeah. But now they're like, hey, if I don't get the P five offer, I want. I'm going to FIU for two years, and then I'm getting that P5 offer, right? Yeah. So in my mind, that's what's made it tough with UM in terms of trying to recruit the state of Miami as they once termed it. Right now, they'll still get talent, and they should still be able to, to an extent, go out and get guys. But yeah, man, that's that's the biggest difference. That and along with just how saturated it is now, you know, everyone is coming down to, to that area. You can't just rope it off. Yeah. I feel like Texas is getting that way. I've said it before. Like, I don't – I think – especially with Texas going to the SEC and now Oklahoma going to the SEC because for Oklahoma, you know, the Metroplex pretty much from South Dallas, you get to like the edges of South Dallas, like, you know, DeSoto and Lancaster, pretty much all the way on up through Oklahoma City. That's an in-state territory for Oklahoma for all intents and purposes. I just feel like the state of Texas is, it's too much of a battleground now for anybody to ever run it like Mac Brown did back in the day where it was like, there was a point where Mac was going through the state of Texas and he wasn't recruiting. He was picking. He was selecting like I want that guy and that guy and that guy. And you offer guys and it's it's an automatic commitment. And so as we saw, sometimes that didn't work out so well, but that's drama for another day. But I don't think anybody will be able to do that again because like you take the, the greater Houston area to your point, you know, A&M and I think, I think Texas got into this problem and, uh, you know, maybe we'll see Baylor and some other schools start to deal with it. You know, uh, when Texas was making their run, you know, A&M was struggling towards the end of R.C. Slocum's time. And then you got Dennis Francione era really starting kind of the coaching carousel that's still going on in College Station. Uh, you know, TCU wasn't wasn't anything to write home about at that point. It hadn't become what it would eventually become under Gary Patterson. And you had, you know, North Texas was pretty much off the radar. Texas State was still in an FCS school. Uh, you know, Baylor was god awful at the time. You know, Mike Leach didn't recruit the state like other guys he did because Tech kind of had their own quirky little thing working out in East Texas or out in West Texas. And it's the state's just completely changed now. You know, SMU, SMU was terrible back then. Houston was terrible back then. All of those schools like SMU's had success in the American and now you know they'll, they're going to the ACC. Houston's in a power conference now. You know, Baylor, TCU, they've won conference championships. Tech is still trying to figure it out. Maybe they got to figure it out under Joey McGuire. But and then you consider that kind of like I talked about with Texas in the Southeast for Nick Saban or whoever's been the coach at LSU or you know if you're at Auburn, like Texas is it's a conference territory now. Like I've got to go in there to recruit against Texas and Texas AM and now Oklahoma because if I don't they're going to get the kids that are going to beat me. And I think the adjustment for the Texas schools is kind of what I saw Miami do unsuccessfully under Larry Coker. <clears throat> to your point, you can still get uh, – it's Miami. You're always going to get talent. But for your depth, you're going to have to figure out different ways to build your depth. And for Texas and Texas A&M, I think Jimbo kind of got 
too far away from it, but I think Sark right now is striking a good balance. You got to go out of state to yeah. get talent. I mean, if, if, and, you know, you, that's going to be those fringe kids in Louisiana or Florida or Georgia or wherever or Southern California or Arizona that, you know, instead of battling USC for a kid, maybe that kid's got an offer from like a UCLA and an Arizona. And you're like, okay, we can go compete with using Atlanta, Arizona for a kid. There's no, no question about that. And if you're Miami, maybe you go to Georgia and while Georgia might not be recruiting that kid, like, Oh, you're telling me we got to be like Georgia tech and Kentucky for a kid. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll go do that. That's the adjustment. I, I don't think Miami's made yet, but I always like talking about state of Florida and Florida recruiting in those three major schools with you, because I've seen it to where, like you said, it's been a while since it's happened, but I remember a time where Florida, Miami, and Florida State were all good at the same time, and it, it's a shame that during the the time where Texas and Texas A and M were in opposite conferences, we never really saw either one of them live up to their full potential. Oklahoma had the nice the A and M had the nice season with Johnny Manziel, and Texas had that one ten win season under Tom Herman. Uh, and obviously now it's kind of a, I don't want, I don't want to say irrelevant. It's definitely not the right word, but Sark just won 12 games in a conference championship. But now you're jumping back into the conference with AM. I just felt like a window was missed where neither one of those schools maximized the time without the other one. We could have had, Eric, we could have had five to seven years where Texas and Texas AM were both top 15 type programs if things had gone the right way. And, you know, maybe, maybe you're talking about Duke and can, can A&M and, and Texas, maybe, maybe they can meet in the Sugar Bowl at a CFP semifinal or something like that. And we never, we never got that. And I think there's a reason why, you know, since Mac Brown, Charlie, uh, you know, after Charlie Strong and Tom Herman, Sark is now the third guy trying to figure it out. And I think we can all agree he's on a good trajectory, but you know, since RC, you've gone through Fran, you've gone through Mike Sherman, Kevin Sumlin, Jimbo. Yeah, Mike Elko's the fifth coach since that run under RC. So I don't know, man. I've said this before. I'll say it again. And I don't know how you feel about this looking at it from the outside. Texas and Texas ain't into me. And, and don't get me wrong, folks. I grew up. You go back and look at my in my bedroom in Florence, Texas, America, back, back in Andice, Texas. It was burnt orange everywhere. I love the University of Texas. But in my lifetime, I felt like Texas and Texas A&M are the two most underachieving programs in the country. Considering the resources, everything they've got, both programs should have more skins on the wall than they have. Jeff, I mean, listen, I, I from an outsider's perspective, and I've talked about this a little bit with you know guys like you and, and Chip and others in terms of Texas was a name. But it never felt the same way. And of course, you know, I'm growing up in Florida, right? And growing up in a time in which Florida, Florida State, for a good six, seven years of my life, decided who was going to go to the national championship game. Yeah. And then you had Miami in the early 2000s, you know, mid-2000s, which they're playing for national titles, right? So maybe that kind of, kind of you know, affected the way I, I viewed things. But it was always interesting because Texas was a name, but it never felt to me like, Texas was on the same plane until VY, right? Like that was yeah. when when, yeah. when that when that happened, that was kind of the the line was like, okay, wow, you know, you see that shift. But one thing I was going to bounce off you really quick is and get your thoughts on it is, man, that's what made that time those former years for me really special was you had um, Florida State in the ACC, you had Florida in the SEC, uh, you had Miami in the Big East at the time, and yeah, you know, typically all those schools, all three of them, top fifteen. And it's just this roulette of 
who's going to knock each other out yeah. that year because it's going to decide who's going to play for a national title, who's going to play for, you know, a big time bowl. I think that was the thing in my mind. I'd be curious, you know, no, what that could have felt like in Texas. Yeah, I, I just I remember the uh, the 2000 season when Miami should have played Oklahoma for the national championship, and I felt like would have beaten Oklahoma. It's funny to hear Jeremy Shockey during the U part two because I think we people forget like Jeremy Shockey's from Oklahoma. I think he's from Ada, yeah. and you know he had a bunch of buddies on that OU team, and he's like they didn't want to play us. I'm like I'm sure I'm sure they didn't, uh, but you know getting to watch that Sugar Bowl between Miami and Florida, it's like you know what at some point one is going to realize they're playing the other and. Those two are going to beat the piss out of each other, and there's going to be a crap ton of NFL guys on that field, just like it what is it the 2003 season. So I guess that would have been the 04 Orange Bowl. Florida State and Miami had a rematch in the Orange Bowl. Right. And I'm like, they're like, oh man, we get Florida State and Miami again. I'm like, uh, show of hands, who's not bitching me for sure? Because like, yeah, I want to see these two teams beat the hell out of each other. And again, there's going to be a bunch of NFL guys on the field. So yeah, it was to me like I always felt like. And again, growing up as a kid in the 90s, I always felt like Florida State was kind of the it program to sure. me anyway. Sure. Like I've, you know, when I talk about Nick Saban and his success, I'm like, I never thought in my lifetime I would see anybody do what Bobby Bowden did. Which what Bobby Bowden have there was like four, like 14 straight seasons finishing in the AP top five. There you go. I just, there you go. It, who does that? Like nobody does that. Well, Nick Saban did it and actually did it better. Um, but yeah, Florida State was kind of the it school for me. And like, as a Texas fan, like the 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 one thing I'll never forget, I'm watching is the 2000 Cotton Bowl at the end of the '99 season in Texas. They ended up playing. I don't know how they did. I think they got an exemption for one of the kickoff classic games. They ended up, it ended up being a 14 game season, and you can tell by the time they got to the Cotton Bowl, they were they were done. Just college kids didn't play 14 games back right. then. But I remember. The, the broadcast crew from Fox talking there during that game was like, man, Texas could be preseason number one to start 2000. I'm like, are you just like, it just seemed like such a foreign concept to me that Texas, and I'm a Texas fan thinking that Texas could be like a preseason number one type team. So yeah, I can definitely get what you're saying from the outside, but you know, and plus there was that Oklahoma problem that Texas had in the early 2000s. But once they got over that hump and won a national championship, then they had it. I just, as close as they got in 08, and they should have played it for an 08, and as close as they got in 09, I just felt like that window post-national championship was something that right. Mac Brown could have really capitalized on that and kind of made Texas, in the state of Texas, what Florida State was to the state of Florida in the 90s. Texas could have been that in the 2000s, and it was just, you know, Mac won a lot of games, and he won a national championship, and won some conference championships, but it could have, it could have been more. It probably should have been more. And to kind of bring a full circle, that's what excites me about Sark because I want to. I still want to get your take on this. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to get. Uh, CB mentioned it that I said on X yesterday that, uh, which I can't believe I just called it X. I've been calling it Twitter the whole time. That I felt like the, this episode of Longhorn Blitz was probably my favorite one that we've done in the decade plus we've been doing the podcast. We we got into a pretty deep philosophical discussion and Kobe Bryant got brought up, Tupac got brought up and we we're talking about Sark. So go down that rabbit hole kids. It's, it's fun. Uh, but I was thinking about Sark and just how motivated he is. And we were talking about like coaches burnout, right? And how coaches kind of have to pace themselves and nobody did it better than Nick Saban of understanding like, 
kind of when when to dial it back a little bit, but really when I need to turn it on so I can, you know, not that Nick Saban ever took a day off, but you, you got to pace yourself or you're going to burn yourself out. And I, I said, you know, I, I wonder, because you've been around Sark long enough now, Eric, like Sark doesn't have a lot of hobbies. I don't ever hear Sark talking about, yeah, I went fishing or, you know, what did this? Like he was talking about, I think it might've been, he was going to his son's graduation. He's like, yeah, I mean, he's like, I'm going to get a, a good meal and, uh, you know, maybe go to, I think it was Hermosa beach. He was going to, and he's like, but you know, I'm going to go hang out with the Rams for a few days and kick it with Sean McVay. Like I think Sark's hobby is football. And I, I part of me wonders after everything, he not just what he went through at SC, but the open heart surgery he yeah. had at Bama in 2020, if that's given him the kind of perspective to where football for him is a healthy obsession where it's like, number one, I never thought I'd get the opportunity to be the head coach at a place like Texas. Number two, if it would have been for Nick Saban, I wouldn't be alive right now. I can't let this opportunity slip away. And whereas a 12-win season, a conference championship – and really being one play away from playing for a national championship where I think a lot of guys in a place like Texas would kind of kick their feet up and think you can put it in cruise control. I feel like Sark, what I'll call a healthy obsession with football and really wanting to maximize the second chance he's got as a head coach. I feel like the 2024 version of Sark, and I think we're seeing that with the way they've attacked the portal. I think Sark's, Sark's probably going to be more motivated than ever to try to get back to that point rather than thinking it's, he's putting it in cruise control. Am I wrong about that? I just, I just wanted to get your, your two cents on that. Jeff, as you lay it out there, the thing that comes to mind is I think there, there are a lot of coaches. And listen, you don't have to be a big-name coach. I mean, we've been around college football long enough to know. I mean, hell, I don't care if you're at insert FCS school. Like, if you're yeah. devoting 14, 15, 16 hours of your day every you know day, 8, yeah. 9, 10 months a year, uh, it, it's a lot. Right. And it, I think there's some people who fall into this category of they have nothing else. Right. Yeah. As opposed to where Sark kind of seems and listen, I, I, you know, no need to rehash everything he's been through. It's, it's well right. documented. But I think you're on to something when you say healthy obsession, because if not this, then what? Right. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and, and, and he probably can. You know, Jeff, I, I, I don't know how you kind of feel about this. I don't like to psychoanalyze people um, a ton. So I think especially in, in media, I think we do that a lot, especially in, yeah, in, in sports media, we do it a lot. But Sark at times, I asked him a question and I, or actually, you know, you weren't there. It was the, um, the day that they, the CFP um, announcement came out. Um, yeah, that's right. Because yeah. you and Chip went to that and I, I didn't. I stayed back. Right. And I wish I could remember exactly the question that prompted this answer. But Sark talked about kind of the perspective his life has given him post everything. And he talked about being with, you know, his, his wife and kind of going through, you know, the social justice things. And, 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 and what it was essentially to kind of bring the audience in was building the relationship with players and what was the impetus behind that. Yeah. And experiencing all of that, whether it was his own personal trials and tribulations or things that were going on in the world. Yeah. And I, I, again, I don't like, I'm not the typically the person who likes to psychoanalyze people, but there's something about that that I think gives him a perspective on, okay, like, for lack of a better phrase, this is my purpose. 
right? Yeah. And 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 to your point, I think that works, right? To where to bring it full circle, maybe you don't feel burnt out, right? Because maybe you know people get into coaching for a, a myriad of reasons. You know, I think we tend yeah. to forget it's a job, it's a business like everybody else, right? And maybe you know some guys should experience that burnout because it, it, whether it's the fear of the unknown or they they don't necessarily have anything else. Yeah. Whereas to bring it home, like I think Sark's seen the other side and is like, all right, this is why I am doing this. And it's probably why the genesis of those culture Wednesdays, right? Like yeah. in, in my mind. So that's kind of my, my two cents on it. Very, very rare are the guys like a Bear Bryant, a Bobby Bowden, a Joe Paterno, that they really are. It's going to end in a parade or a pine box. Right. That's just the way those guys live. I mean, it's kind of, it was kind of eerie hearing Paul Feinbaum talk about his, you know, when he covered Alabama as a young reporter, talking about kind of the last roundtable the Bama writers have Bear Bryant when he retired. And as he's walking out of the room, Feinbaum says, Bear turns to everybody and he goes, I wonder what I'll be doing a year from now. And a month later, he was dead. Right. Like, some guys just can't, like, you can't live without football. It, it, it can be, you know, it, it can be all you've got. But, you know, I, I envy the guys like a, like a Jimmy Johnson or, or a Bill Parcells that have kind of known through times like I'm going to go as hard as I can as long as I can, but I know my limits. I know when it's time to walk away. And Jimmy didn't do it, but Parcells, what, what would he do? Take a few years off, get the batteries recharged, and then he'd be back. I, I think a guy like Urban Meyer, I don't think Urban's known when to quit. You know, uh, I as sad as it is, man, I – I think I think Mac Brown is kind of like that. Like Mac doesn't need to coach right now. Like Matt, Matt could be having a TV gig and living a posh life. Like he doesn't need to be coaching North Carolina. He doesn't need to be concerning himself with NIL legislation in the state of college football. Like he should be kicking back. But uh, very rare are the guys like a, like a Nick Saban that that gets to that can do it as successfully as long as he did and have that kind of longevity. And then just to one day on your own terms, just be like you know what, I, I don't think I can do it anymore and just kind of be be at peace with that and be ready to move on to the next thing. But I think I think Sark, I just feel like he sees this as an opportunity to do something really special. And going back to what I said about Mac post-national championship, Texas could have, Mac Brown could have should have been a multi-time national champion head coach. Mac, Mac Brown should have at least two rings, if not three. And I think Sark now sees, I think, I think we've gotten a taste of, of what Texas can be in this era of college football, but I think more importantly, Sark has gotten a taste of what Texas can be and realized that you know what, hey, my vision works, my plan works, my plan, my plan got us one play away from the national championship, and it's not that he's satisfied. It's like, dude, if we if we keep doing this, like we can we can get over that hump because Eric, you've seen it, man. They're stacking too much talent right now, and in an NIL world where. Everybody's kind of going no string. It's it's you know no holds barred. Right. And Texas is being Texas and throwing its weight around. There's a window here where you can you can cash in and you can get you one. Do to do something that only in the history of this program, only Daryl Royal and Mac Brown have done, and that's win a national championship. Man, if I'm Sark, that's enough to get me out of bed in the morning. No doubt about it, Jeff. And and again, I think you take a look at Nick Saban's retirement, right? If there was any feeling of like, hey, you know, the king is eventually going to because look, over the past, what, 15 years, you know, Nick is going to get one or two within a what three year stretch, four year stretch. Yeah. Right. 
with the king gone, I, I think that even provides more of, you know, an impetus of this being, you know, you talk about in the NFL, right? Like, is your window closed? Uh, you know, how open is your window? What, well, how long is your window? Um, uh, in my mind for Texas, yeah, you got to be able to capitalize, especially in this NIL um, yeah. environment, which, you know, you're going to be able to stack talent and get players. It's there. It's absolutely there for the taking. Yeah. And real quick, that's kind of what I would tell a Texas A&M fan right now, you know, with Mike Elko. Kind of take the same approach that, that Texas took with Sark. Like, look, just just be patient. And, you know, hey, with Jimbo, you did the NIL thing. You dropped bags. And you know what? It didn't work. As a matter of fact, I don't think it could have gone worse than it went two years ago in the way it ended. So, you know what? Just You've done a lot of other stuff. That's Honestly, Eric, that's kind of what but this was obviously before you, but like when Sark was hired, I got to the point where, you know what? I, I've seen guys try to bring Texas back, and I've seen everybody do it a different way. Like Mac after the 2010 season coming off the national day, they, they played Alabama for the title and then went five and seven. Mac hired an all-star staff. Look at the guys on that 2011 Texas staff that went on to become head coaches. Manny Diaz was on that staff. Brian Harson was on that staff. Major Applewhite was on that staff. You had Dwayne Aquina coaching the secondary, Bo Davis coaching the D-line. You had Stacey Searles was your all-line coach. Like you had the absolute, like probably if you just went out and gave Mac Brown a blank check and said, go hire the best staff in the country, that might have been it. That might have been it. And it didn't, it didn't do anything for you. And then you brought in a guy, a complete outsider in Charlie Strong. And that didn't work. And then Tom Herman, the prodigal son, came back home. And that didn't work. So I'm like, you know what? At this point, man, I've seen this done three ways and nothing's worked. I'm, hell, I'm willing to give Sark a chance. You're going to tell me Steve Sarkeesian's going to relearn how to be a head coach on the fly at Texas? Sure. Why the hell not? Let's just, <laughs> let's just hang back and see what happens. But uh, I, think, we've, I think we've talked about this. It, you know, Sark has some really good mentors, you know, Pete Carroll and uh, North Turner's one of Sark's mentors. And as a Cowboys fan, uh, I love I'll, I'll, anytime I can name drop one of the guys on Jimmy's staff. I will. You know, Sark worked for North Turner. North Turner's been a big influence on Sark. But, you know, everything Nick Saban's meant to Sark personally and professionally. I think of the Nick Saban assistants, other than Kirby Smart, Sark has taken the Nick Saban playbook and done it better than anybody except Kirby. Because you can't, you can't go. I think that's the, the mistake the Urban Meyer assistants make is I have to be Urban Meyer. No. You take the Urban Meyer playbook and put your spin on it. That's what Kirby's done with Saban. That's what Sark has done with Saban. Lane Kiffin now, and did you deal with Lane at FAU at all? Yes. yes. Lane Kiffin now, if you look at the guy that was the head coach at Tennessee and SC and the Raiders, Lane Kiffin is a completely different guy now than he was then. And I think a lot of that goes to Nick Saban. Granted, when you come up, like when your dad's a football coach and you grow up in a football family, it's different. You see the game different. But the, the guys that take that, the, the Saban assistants seem to really grasp, I'm going to take this playbook that the greatest college football coach of all time has given me, and I'm going to put my spin on it and see how I can do it, rather than just be, that's the, I think the Urban Myers assistants and the Belichick assistants are too similar. It's in a bad way, like, I'm going to do it my way. Like, no, that's why Josh McDaniels and Matt Patricia and Bill O'Brien go on down the list were abject freaking failures as, as head coaches in the NFL. Jeff, you took the words. Even assistants have, have done well. 
does. Just to say real quick, you took the words right out of my mouth with, with Belichick, right? I think it's interesting yeah. how Saban and Belichick obviously have such close ties, but they've done it at least as far as their assistants have done it differently, right? Like what was the 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 words coming out of uh, uh, Detroit, right? With Matt Patricia, where it's it's like, yo, who, bro, you're not Belichick. Like, what are you, what are you doing? You know? So yeah, I just wanted to you know throw that in there really quick. You, like that garbage that McDaniel's tried to tell uh, Antonio Pierce when he was talking about. Because right, right, it was right, right, from a player's right. experience. Like, hey, when we beat when we beat the seventeen and 0 Patriots, like nobody thought we could do it, and trying to get the team fired up. And McDaniel's like has the gall to be like, yeah, don't ever badmouth the Patriots in here again. Like, what, dude? You don't work for Bill Belichick anymore. Like, you can, you know, Robert Kraft isn't spying on you from the massage parlor. Like, you can you can let go. Like, you're the head coach of the Raiders. See that name on your shirt? It says Raiders. Yeah, exactly. You work for a different franchise. Hey, real quick, we didn't get to talk basketball, but I do yeah. want to ask you about, I'll call him your guy, because you, Eric Lowe is chomping at the bit to interview this guy. Did a couple stories on him during the year. How excited are you to see Christian Jones putting in some good work at the Senior Bowl? Oh, listen, listen, listen. And, and, and I, the fact that he's working at guard, Jeff, I, I, I like that as well, because I think, listen, you can have you know a guard who's Christian Jones' size and with his athleticism, um, and even talking to some people who were involved with his recruitment at Texas, you know, his footwork, his athleticism, you know, that background. I'm ex- really excited to see what Christian uh, does there. I think that it, he seems like a guy, Jeff, and again, you know, I know we're getting ready to transition to the next hour, but seems like a guy who just needed kind of the light bulb to, to kind of, you know, flicker yeah. and to get that confidence. And once he has it now, look out. Yeah. I, I You know, I've heard of old line coaches at Texas that – you know, didn't have a good way of reaching guys, you know, like Joe Wickline, there, there's a certain, there was a certain type of, you know, I don't know if you remember Joe Wickline when he was on Ron Zook's staff at Florida, his old line coach, but Wickline was the type of guy that he coaches one way and that way works for some guys. Basically, you've got a case of the red ass from the time you walk into the building until the time you leave. And for some guys that works. For some guys, that's not the way you reach guys. I think Kyle Flood, I want to say Stacy Searles did this, and I really like Stacy, but I just don't think he got enough time to do it. Uh, I think Matt Maddox could have been this guy, but I don't think he got enough time to do it. Uh, Kyle Flood's done the best job, I think, of kind of like we talked to bring really bring this full circle. What we talked about, what Kenny Baker is, what Tyson Helton said, he's really good at. I think Kyle Flood has done a really good job of coaching offensive line conceptually the way he needs to coach it, but looking at different guys and saying this guy needs to work on his footwork. This guy's hands are too slow. This guy needs to change his technique on a pull. This guy's kick slide needs a little bit of work. This guy needs to focus more on this and taking those guys, those individual things guys need to work on and, and working on it. Christian Jones has got is a better player. You know, Hayden, Hayden Connor has been has contrib- the fact that uh Hayden Connor's been a two-year starter at Texas. Kyle Flood's gotten more starting seasons out of Hayden Connor than I thought the program would get out of him when they recruited him, if I'm being hundred percent honest. Uh, you know, Jake Majors has gotten better under Kyle Flood. Uh, you know, Kelvin Banks is going to be a first round pick. I think Kelvin Banks is more of a guy that he's got the tools. Kyle Flood just got to show him how to use them. Uh, DJ, DJ Campbell, I don't, as BK joins us now, DJ Campbell, if you go back and watch the Sugar Bowl, I don't know if anybody on that Texas roster had a better bowl game than DJ Campbell. Of the guys that are coming back, DJ Campbell might have had the best Sugar Bowl. So I'm, Man, it's been a. I've been wanting the Texas offensive line to be a group other than one that just like makes me want to drink bleach during a game. 
But now we're at the point where I'm like, dude, they've got, they've got talent. They've got depth and you're going to have a good starting five for the foreseeable future. Yeah. You're going to have attrition at that group, but man, just guys competing for jobs. It's, it's going to be the, the, the worm has turned with the Texas offensive line. And it's a really good thing because Trey BK, you guys can uh, agree with me on this. We, we've, you know, Texas right now, I think the challenge is, okay, who are your top eight or nine guys? And there's competition for those spots. There were years where I'm like, okay, are there five guys that are able-bodied that won't embarrass themselves being on the field? Like, there were some years where the offensive line was like that. Yeah, there were years where I wasn't sure there were three guys who wouldn't embarrass themselves on that offensive line. I mean, you're right. It's nice, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Texas had its best year in the last 15 seasons with the best offensive line it's had in that stretch. And hell, I think last year's offensive line was better than the 09 offensive oh, line. Oh, no question. No yeah, question. that obviously played for a national championship. So it's been maybe two decades since uh, Texas has had an O line like this, and it doesn't feel like a one off, right? You've got four guys coming back, and you've got guys on the bench that you feel good about. And there's that D word again. Y'all know I love the D development. It's happening. On the so offensive heard. line. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're laughing like you're insinuating something else. I'm not quite sure what it is. They each their own, PK. <laughs> but the uh, development has been there, man. So it's it's good. It's exciting times for, for Texas I, yeah. for a lot of reasons. I, I think Trey will appreciate this as a, as a Texas man. Um, that 2015 season, I think it was, we're interviewing Marcus Hutchins the Monday after the Oklahoma game, after they beat Oklahoma. And we're like, hey, you know, kind of what, you know, what was going through your mind? Like, cause it was, I think that was his first start. And he said, he said, I walk out there for the first snap. And I said, oh shit, I'm starting the Oklahoma game. And I'm thinking, trust me, dude, we were all kind of thinking the same thing. <laughs> we're all right there with Marcus Hutchins thinking, oh shit, Marcus Hutchins is starting the Oklahoma game. Yep. It was some lean years on the O-line, man. But things are, things are looking up. BK, where, where are you at today? I am in Houston, Texas, USA, America. Uh, where I'm broadcasting today is actually the same house where the first ever Texas Sports Unfiltered broadcast took place before I moved back to Austin. So down here for a couple of days. I've got it. Can you tell what that is behind me? It looks like a picture that has glass in front of it that you can see the reflection of the light. <laughs> <laughs> Very, that, uh, very astute observation there, Trey. Like Astros dog pile. Not an Astros dog pile. Rangers dog pile? Definitely not that. Yankees? No. Think college. Rice? Oh, rice. The 03 College World Series dog pile for the Rice Owls. Where's David Pierce in that picture? Uh, that guy looks too old. I think he's getting his head smashed in at the bottom of that pile right there. Yeah, probably. That would make sense. Next time, next time I see Coach Pierce, I'll ask him, "Hey, what? Uh, where? Where were you positioned in the dog pile?" There you Omaha? go. Is that a drawing or an actual picture? No, it's a painting. Okay, so maybe somebody uh, painted Troy Tulowitzki's face over David Pierce's face at a, <laughs> a, with a sick joke. Yeah. Well, it looks like. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why the, this is. I'm at the guy I lived with's house uh, in Houston, and he did not go to Rice, and no one in his family went to Rice. I have no idea why he has this. 
this is his office. Like I'm in where he normally works. So every Zoom call he takes for his job, he's got this rice baseball dog pile, and I don't think he uh, could give a rat's ass about rice baseball. Interesting. Yeah. Sometimes art is art, and that is a really cool background picture. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I don't want it. I'd rather you know, two or oh five instead, but I'm biased. Yeah, I've got, I've got like a trail like this. I've got some stuff that I actually uh, pilfered from uh, from the old place, like a real nice Vince Young photo, and it's kind of in that style. And a, it's a nice Texas football one. I got to get them up on the wall. But I've got, I, I, I agree with that, Trey. Art is art. Can I just tell you, Trey, that I'm, I'm of all our setups here. Everybody's got their own setup. I'm insanely jealous of your setup. Like even more so. I know Wags has a Mortal Kombat cabinet. In, on his in his setup, which is freaking awesome, but your your office looks like just a place where you can just hang out and chill all day. I don't I don't know if I'm just reading too much into the bookcase behind you, but it seems like a pretty. It, it looks like a grown up goes to work there. Yeah, you know this is uh, the magic of not really television, YouTube, I guess, because I am at an awkward spot in the room, but it's directly in front of this bookshelf. Where it looks really nice. At some point, I may turn the camera around so people can see the rest of the room because the rest of the room is okay. It's not a big mess or anything. But I like if somebody were to walk in right now, they'd be like, oh, wow, you are in the worst possible spot to have a desk in this room. It's blocking one of the doorways into the room. Hmm. There is another way to to get out. But I, I appreciate that because it's been two and a half years of me doing these sorts of broadcast conversations, interviews, recordings, etc. And there's, it's been an evolution. Like it started out where I was actually up against the window. And so the bookshelf was more in the background, but then mm-hmm. I realized having a door behind me looks a little bit weird and I can have some more fun with the, uh, the bookcases and putting more things yeah. than just books on there. The, the most recent edition, let's see if I can get this right. The most recent edition is this right here. You guys know what that is? Looks like a heartbeat. Okay, so that you're you're on the right track there. It is sound waves. Sound waves. Yep, that's a good call, Eric. DK is nodding along with that one. So that is uh, something that I just got for my 11th wedding anniversary from Justine. I guess the official medal of the 11th anniversary, and this is not something we always abide by, is steel. And so she wasn't planning on getting me anything. Mm-hmm. But instead, she had this idea last minute to get me our song, the waveform of the song that we danced to at our wedding in steel. She stole it? She didn't steal it, no. She uh, she ended awesome. up, oh, steel, I see what you did there. <laughs> she did order it. She did pay for it, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I guess, not living up to the uh, to the steel standard. But yeah, it's our, our first dance song in waveform. That's cool. See, but uh, on this, this part that is... Out of shot, it says Trey and Justine established 2013. That's awesome. Did you, uh, when I forgot what anniversary it is, but when you hit the one where wood is the gift, did you make the uh, juvenile jokes that I did to my wife <laughs> that I had it covered? Yes. Little family secret here. <laughs> Every anniversary is wood on this. Hey, Okay. <laughs> family program here, gentlemen. Is it? No. Is it? Yeah. Thank God. Because, wow, there are some families that have probably broken up by now. Mm. Yeah. In the history of you two doing a midday show together, like, they're, I'll just say, not that they were used, but 
there was a kind of a fleshlight tutorial at one point. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's well, they were used. You guys, well, you know, again, BK was, to each their oh, own. There was a flashlight that was supposed to remain on the windowsill that just conspicuously disappeared at one point. Um, I'll blame Bucky, hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, all right, fellas, y'all, y'all got stuff to do. Yeah, you guys uh, have a good show, and uh, we'll be back to do it tomorrow. Eric, thank you so much, man. Again, I know it was short notice, but appreciate it as always, sir. Anytime, Jeff. All right, hey, thank you guys. guys.